Several years ago, after Howard Hughes died, someone asked the question, how much did he leave behind? And a close friend, without really thinking, replied, well, all of it. <laughs> That's the message of our New Testament lesson this morning. What happens to all our possessions when you and I are gone from this life? How important will they be when we've drawn our last breath? How much of our time and energy are they really worth during the short time that we have here on earth? I was visiting with some folks not long ago, but we were talking about St. Dunstan Church. And the question came up, somebody said, are you like all the other churches? Is money all y'all ever talk about? And I told him I'd only talked about stewardship one time during my brief time here. I mentioned how Jim had, had addressed the congregation a few months back, reminding people of our, that our expenses would increase when the new rector came, but that we really didn't talk about money all that much. And I think that's a true statement. One of the reasons that we haven't talked much about stewardship is that we've all, I think, always been fairly good stewards here as a church, although maybe not always as a Generally, I think our congregation has contributed well. And you've worked to keep your expenses to a minimum. And this has allowed you to build this beautiful place of worship and fellowship. You support a variety of outreach programs. For that, you can be thankful. But what might you be able to do if all the people truly took stewardship seriously? I may not have preached what I'd call a stewardship sermon very often, but I'm certainly talking about stewardship a great deal because that's something that Jesus spoke about more than we may realize. Now, I might insert here that I'm not talking about giving to the church. I'm talking about giving to God. And you might ask, well, what's the difference? And I'd respond by saying it's a matter of attitude and understanding of what stewardship is really meant to be. Someone told me once that tithes and offerings were not mentioned a great deal in the New Testament. Well, it's noted quite often in the Old Testament. I think they were suggesting that maybe it wasn't relevant anymore, but I replied by saying that, that one's tithes and offerings was a concept that began in the Old Testament. It was one of the things that God laid out for his chosen people. It's something that they were expected to do, and by the time that we get to the New Testament, people understood what it was that God expected. It didn't need to be mentioned as much. Well, that's another true statement. So let's look for a few moments this morning at our Old Testament lesson. The book of Ecclesiastes is unique in the Old Testament. It's considered one of the books of wisdom, and it's placed between the books of Proverbs and the Song of Solomon. But while it complements those two books, and we're not sure who the author is, it was written much later than the others, and it's actually not a part of Hebrew scripture. Martin Luther had an interesting description of the book of Ecclesiastes. He said it was written in order to teach us to use with grateful hearts the things present and the creatures which are bountifully bestowed upon us by God without anxiety about future temporal blessings. That's a mouthful. But I believe that we can see that description in the author's writings. We are to be grateful for the bounty that God has given to each of us and not be anxious about the future. 
One of the problems that we have sometimes in studying the Old Testament is that there, there are no quotation marks in the ancient Hebrews, unlike we have in the English. So we don't know sometimes whether we're hearing the views of the writer or if he's quoting the thoughts of somebody else. Really kind of glad you don't often look at this Old Testament book that often. I find it difficult to interpret, and I find the, the writer's rather, rather cynical. He begins his writings with these verses in verse 2 of chapter 1. It is meaningless. Nothing is worthwhile. Everything is futile. I mean, that's, that's cynical. That's why he begins his writing. He goes on in, in verse 9 to say, what has been will be again. What's been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. No matter how much we see, we're never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we're not content. Robert seems to, to look out at society and shrug his shoulders and said, it's the system and you can't beat it. You can't win. Generations come and go, but it makes no difference. I, I guess that could have been written yesterday as well as a few thousand years ago. <clears throat> Apparently some things seem to never change. Another thing that I find about the writer of Ecclesiastes is that he has a great deal in common with modern men. He seems to be well aware of the traditional faith and, and the religious teachings of the time. They've helped shape his life. However, these things seem to no longer satisfy him. Somewhere along the, the line, his questions found no answers. He takes a long, hard look at life, and what he finds is disheartening. In this regard, I believe that he's like many today. They've been brought up in the church and, and taught to accept the traditional Christian teachings, and yet they've found neither the church nor its teachings to be any longer helpful or relevant. And so they look to themselves for answers. Let me read to you from verse 12, the, the, the teacher. Some translations use the word preacher, while others say the speaker or the philosopher. The, the word in the Hebrew is loth. And it really doesn't have a good English word that conveys its meaning. In, in today's world, we might describe it as a person who is a wise professor who liked to challenge his students to think. I said a moment ago that the writer begins with the word meaningless. Everything is futile. The word that's used in the, in the New Testament standard that we read here this morning said vanity. It says all is vanity. The Good News Bible says emptiness. Other translations use a word like useless. But whatever the translation, the writer uses that word about 35 times within a brief 12 chapters of his writing. I, I, I said it was cynical. The original word meant breath. But it might better be described as a vapor because it describes something that's, that's hollow, hollow and vain. It's a word used in the Old Testament to describe the gods of other people who are powerless idols. And it's as though the writer is saying from the outset that there's just no meaning to life. Have you ever thought about the meaning of life later? Or as we get older, do we too just allow ourselves to get simple? Just plodding along from day to day, falling into a rut, and getting by with our stuff. Now, a wise professor, the writer, does not say that he finds life uninteresting. Far from it. He's fascinated with life. But then he says that when he steps back and reflects, there's still a big question mark because it just doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. It seems empty of any real meaning. And again, he reminds us of the negative people in today's society. 
Good people who are brought up in a tradition of faith, but for whom the old certainties of life no longer seem to make sense. They seem to be enjoying life, but they have to admit that there are times when it, it just seems meaningless. If we're honest with ourselves, I suspect that we can all recall times when we've had moments when we could easily relate to the professor. He said, the sun rises, the sun sets, and tomorrow I'll do that all over again. He says, the wind will change directions, but soon it will veer around and blow the same way as before. The rivers keep pouring their waters into the sea, but it doesn't make any difference to the sea. In today's language, I guess we might just say, been there, done that. The writer says at one point you think you're on top of a situation, the next you realize that it's all slipped through your fingers. He believes rightly that there are many things in life over which we simply have no control. In verse 15, he says you can't straighten out what's been bent, and you can't count what's not there. Now, there's a side of me that can appreciate the honesty of the writer. He, he didn't have many answers, but he had the shape of it. It seems as though the more he digs, the greater his problem becomes. With increased knowledge, only comes increased sorrow. And yet he continues to ask meaningful questions. He's persistent. I commanded last week's lesson, knocking on his neighbor's door. He decides to pursue pleasure in an attempt to find meaning in life, but, but that too proves to be meaningless. Like so many before and after, the wise man discovers that the pursuit of pleasure is self-defeating. Then he turns to stuff. In verse 4 of chapter 2, he says, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards and made gardens and carts. I made reservoirs and brought slaves. I increased my herds and flocks and amassed silver and gold. He said, I'm afraid greater than anyone before me. I denied myself nothing. I refused my heart no pleasure. That's getting pretty wrapped up in your stuff, all right. Our wise man said, this is the reward of all my labor. And I suspect that there are many of us here this morning that can relate to that. We've come to a point in our lives where we're beginning to, to reap the benefits of years of hard work. We're in a position, hopefully, to enjoy the results of our past efforts. Or if we're not quite there yet, we're we believe we can see the light at the end of the tunnel, and you can dream of a day when it'll all come together. You'll be rewarded for your labor. Well, listen to what the wise professor says in verse 11. When I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had taught to achieve, everything was meaningless. <coughs> of the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. It was all for nothing. It was mere vapor that ultimately provided to be meaningless, proved to be meaningless. Now the writer doesn't apologize or make excuses. He simply acknowledges that he finds no answers in acquiring stuff. Life, real life, isn't about keeping up with the Joneses. What was it that Jesus had said to his disciples? What does it gain a man if he gains the whole world? He loses his soul. Then in verse 12, the writer says, Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and folly. He tells us that he learned that there were no answers to be found in physical possession, so now he'd seek his answers to knowledge. And he runs the whole gamut from one extreme to the other. Now there's a practical value to be found in wisdom. It can guide us through life and 
help prevent us from making some of those same stupid mistakes that others have made who have gone before us. But even this bit of truth has a snag or two. The first thing that the writer learns is that the wise man and the foolish man both have something in common. They both die the same death. All of us, when we come to face death, find that it makes a mockery of our human pretensions and our desires and our achievements. All the other things he discovered was that when it comes to all the skill, all of our ability, our energy, all those things that we work so hard for, those things that you slaved the bone over, burning them down all for, all those things you gather together to secure your future, well, they just pass on to someone else. We really can't take it with us. Now, how does that relate to our lesson from Luke's Gospel? Our lesson begins with someone in the crowd coming to Jesus and asking to help settle the dispute with his brother over their inheritance. Now, this would not have been an uncommon practice for a respected rabbi at the time. They would have often been asked to settle various disputes. But Jesus refuses to get in the middle of a dispute over money. That shows just how wise Jesus really was. Never get involved with money matters, particularly with one family members. But the incident did offer Jesus the opportunity to teach his followers a lesson about possessions. Jesus had something to say to those who had an abundance of possessions and those who didn't. He said, talk to his followers about a man who had an abundance. It's a good deal like the man that's described in the Old Testament. Let's listen. The land of a rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and then I'll store all my grain and my goods, and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Do you ever anything when you heard that parable? Well, I want to read it again. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. He said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns, and I'll build bigger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods, and I'll say to myself, you have put in good things laid up for years. Take life easy, eat, dream, be merry. What'd you hear? There is no other parable in all the scriptures that is so full of I, me, my, mine. There was a young schoolboy one time that was asked what part of speech was mine and mine. And after he thought for a few minutes, he said, they're aggressive pronouns. I think that he may have had a point. He probably should have said processive pronouns. But for many, they've really become aggressive pronouns, haven't they? There's a Latin proverb that says that money's like seawater. The more you drink, the thirstier you get. Because it seems to describe the, the man in our parable pretty well. The man never saw beyond himself. And the more he had, the more he wanted. He also never saw beyond this world. All his plans were predicated on his life here. I heard of a conversation that took place between an ambitious young man and an older and wiser man. And the young man said, I'm, I'm going to educate myself. And the older man said, and then? He said, well, I'll start my own business. And the old man said, and then? And he said, well, I'll make my fortune. And then? Well, I suppose I'll grow old and retire and live with my money. 
representative then. He said, well, I suppose someday I'll die. And the old man said, and then? The man who fails to realize that there's another world is destined someday for that very grim shock. Do either of this morning's lessons teach us that there's anything wrong with material possessions? No. Does either of our lessons suggest that there's anything wrong with ambition and hard work? No. Should we feel guilty if we, if we live in a fine home and enjoy the fruits of our labors? No. No, that's not the message to be learned from today's lessons. But what we are meant to learn this morning is that we need to keep our priorities straight. We need to learn to understand what's really important in life. We need to give God, God thanks daily for all that we have, recognizing that everything that we have comes from God. I guess the biggest problem that many people have is they fall into the trap of believing that they're responsible for their success in life. God told the children of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy, he said, where do you think your wealth came from? Do you really believe it came because of your abilities? He said, it is I who have blessed you and given you those abilities. We're told time and again in the scriptures that we're to give of our time and our talent and our possessions, and that's not multiple choice. It's not time or talent or possessions. It's time and talent and possessions. And the reason that we have this commandment from God is that all we have comes from God. And he rightfully asked for a portion of it back as a sign of our thanksgiving and our gratefulness. There's a Danish proverb that says, what we are is God's gift to us, but what we become is our gift to God. What does that mean? It means that God deserves the best that we have in every area of our life. And he doesn't want just what's left over at the end of the day or the end of the month. He deserves more than that five-minute prayer at the end of the day as you crawl into bed and struggle to stay awake for a few more minutes. He deserves more than this hour on Sunday morning if you don't have something else planned or you don't have company or you're too tired from the night before. He deserves more than those same few dollars, maybe, that you slip out of the offering plate week after week if you're here. That's not an offering. That's a, that's a contribution. There's a difference. Remember the parable of the, the servants and the talents? Their master was going away, and he called him in, and he gave one servant five talents, another two, and another one, and he went on his journey. And when the master returned, he called the servants together for an accounting, and the man had been given five coins, and he invested them, and he had ten coins. The man had begun with two and done the same thing, and he had four. But the third man said, I was afraid that I'd lose my coin, and so I buried it. I did nothing with it. The master said, you wicked, lazy servant. I gave you an opportunity and you wasted it. And he took the single coin and gave it to the man who had ten. Now what's that lesson this morning? Fail to use the gifts that God has graciously given us and we may lose them. Use your time and talent and possessions for God's glory and he'll increase them. Now, am I standing here this morning and telling you, as some preachers will, that if you increase your giving, that you'll get a raise or come into some unexpected money or reward from God? No, that's not the way God works. In fact, God tells us in the Scripture that unless we're giving from a cheerful heart, remember, we might as well keep our money. See, He doesn't need it. And your gift will be like keeping hot coals on your own head. God knows why you give. He also knows how important your possessions are to you. 
And how valuable you consider your time and your abilities. There's two reasons I'm, I'm preaching the sermon this morning. And one of them has to do with my attempt to get you to increase your weekly offering, believe it or not. It's really not. However, if some of you will think or rethink your attitude toward giving, that would be a bad thing. But it's the lesson that our gospel readings teach us this morning. And I believe it's a message that Christ would want us to hear this morning. I suspect it's a lesson that we all need to hear. We've all been called to be servants of God, each and every one of us, as individuals and as a congregation. And real servants do what is needed, even when it's inconvenient. <coughs> servants don't make excuses. They don't procrastinate. God expects you and me to do what we can with what we have, wherever we are. Real servants do their job. They fulfill their responsibilities. They keep their promises and their commandments. And listen to this. Faithful servants don't get retired. Now let me wrap up with a couple more words about servanthood. Servanthood and stewardship go hand in hand. Paul is describing a follower of Jesus in 1 Corinthians where he says, One thing is required of man that he be faithful to his master. And Jesus went on on another occasion and said, You cannot serve two masters. Remember, he said, You can't serve both God and money. It's interesting that God said cannot, not shall not or may not. He said it's impossible to serve both God and money. And money has proven to be the single greatest potential for replacing God in people's lives that we have. Now, having money is not the sin. Failing to use it for God's glory is. See, I believe that part of the problem that many folks face in today's world is that most people don't like to think of themselves as servants. That's not part of who we like to be in this society. When we see a servant as being a lowly position at the bottom of the totem pole, we would rather see ourselves up a little closer to the top of the food chain. David said in Psalm 100, Serve the Lord with gladness, come before him with song. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who has made us and we're his people. Servants think of ministry as an opportunity. Not as an obligation. Where's your treasure this morning? Are you storing it up here on earth? Or is it in your account for all eternity? Paul wrote to the Colossians and told them to seek the things that are above. And you also think of those things in the day ahead. That's my second sermon on stewardship. And probably my last. <laughs> 